listening to right where you are sitting now. Hello and welcome to episode 33 of uh, Right Where You're Sitting Now, the podcast for the site sittingnow.co.uk. I'm Ken Eakins and joining me this week is a returning character, someone who hasn't been on the show for, I don't know, how long over has it been? Over a year. Over it's a been year. over a year, Ken. It's uh, the big bad Jacob J.W. Williams. How are you doing, Jacob? Yeah, that's me. As I was saying, it's been over a year since I've been on. It was... Uh, which episode was it? I can't remember. It was the episode we did with um, those guys from... Um... Theory Radio, was it? That's right, yeah. yeah. All right. I thought, I thought, for some reason, I thought it was the Bob Curran one we did after that. But no, maybe not. Um, no, I think that was the last one, yeah. Mm. Interesting stuff. Anyway, um, it's getting near to Christmas, and this is where we get lots of new listeners each year, traditionally. Uh, not that it's, well, it's only been one do you year. Know, <laughs> saying that, you, you, do you know what you could do? Mm-hmm. You could do the New Year's Honours. New Year's honours. You could do your sort of own prize giving ceremony. <laughs> what, what, what do you think about that? But who? What prizes would we give though? I don't know. Well, if Barack Obama can get the Nobel Peace Prize, perhaps, you know, who can we think of that can get an equally stupid award? Mm. Um, you know what I mean? The, the Sitting Now Awards. Well, maybe next year. We'll think about that, but anyway, yeah, it's, uh, the main way... Wasting an opportunity. Everyone gets iPods for Christmas, and that's when they think, oh, I'll listen to podcasts. So it's really important for us uh, that you guys start putting some more reviews up on iTunes. Now, I know some of you guys already have done it. Um, America is winning. <laughs> They've done the most... You, are most of the listeners now from America? No, 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 no. no. It's quite an equal spread, actually, but... Uh, They've done the most reviews on iTunes, and uh, our own country's letting us down, Jacob. It's not. It's no good. Um, so we need some your, more. Your your country? Oh, our country? <laughs> not Wales. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Can you can you tell how many people from Wales listen? Well, both of them. You and, uh, <laughs> and your brother. No, no. I'm sure we have lots of lovely Welsh listeners. Yeah, um, no. I do classify myself as a British person, so <laughs> I think most people. Yeah, like you say, it's an equal distribution. But the more, the merrier. Yeah. Especially the reviews. Yeah. Get ever ever popular. Yeah. Well, we we reviews are good because they help kind of classify, you know, your episode and kind of rate it. Uh, which is always handy on iTunes because iTunes is the main way people get our show statistically speaking I'd like uh, to think that episode 33 and any other I've appeared in will have been the most listened to uh, I, I, I actually have a feeling that episode 33 will probably be one of the most popular for the reason that it covers yeah, yeah. Um, the topics that it will cover because anyway, before, it's very we, popular. Uh, before we talk about that we're going to cut some adverts Airy Radio opening the door to the unknown listener feedback really looking forward to the new episodes so keep up with your work guys thanks interviews there's so many movies so many documentaries even books that come out that have factual information in it that maybe you know this is a gradual way of of kind of educating the public as to what's going on visit eerie radio at www.eerieradio.com Excuse me, I've got some information I'd like to share with you. Did you know that 26 billion pickles are packed each year in the U.S.? That's about 9 pounds of pickles per person. More than half the cucumbers grown in the U.S. are made into pickles. Hey, pickle boy, let's talk pickles. The Podcast Pickle, that is. The Podcast Pickle is your resource for all the latest and greatest podcasts found in cyberspace with thousands of podcasts listed and more added every day. Here's some of the podcasts that you'll find at podcastpickle.com. <laughs> Geek Foo Action Grip. Beachcast. Comic Geek Speak. 
speechless. Mad King. This Week in Tech. Warren Town Talk. NASCAR Zone. Shelly the Republican. A Voice from Eden. Jimmy McBean. Five Minutes with Wichita. Cinema Playground. Offbeat. The Logo Factory. The Exit 50. This and that with Jeff and Pat. Thoughts on psychiatry. Web hosting show. Marlene from Berlin. Random cast. Jazz with Tiger. American Road Trip Show. The Drew M Podcast. The Slam Idol Podcast. Forgotten Tales. The Zencast. XboxStation.net. How to do stuff. Now, Pickle has a whole new meaning. PodcastPickle.com. The world's best podcast directory. Yeah, so you're listening to episode 33 of Sitting Now. I'm Jacob Williams, the guest host here with Ken Eakins. And this episode, we're going to be talking to the the very accomplished Jim Mars. Jim, whether you believe or agree with him or not, I don't think anybody can disagree that he is a man who knows his stuff and is highly accomplished. Yeah, definitely. He's um, uh, From the interviews I've seen with him prior to this one, he's definitely... Uh, an erudite gentleman um and yeah no it's, I, I think it's going to be a good a good show what what i quite like from what i've heard from him before is that um you know i've seen the interviews he's done before and i'm hoping that the interview is going to go the same way that he sort of he, he isn't he isn't too sort of hard line he's, he's he likes to discuss the issues rather than telling you as it is and yeah, he entertains thoughts and 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 perceptions he doesn't sort of isn't too harsh he he, he likes to discuss and inform you rather than telling you how it is yeah i think that's the best way to to be a conspiracy theorist because conspiracy conspiracy theorists are always open to the perception that they're nutcases but uh, you definitely don't get that from the from jim mars no no he's definitely uh he doesn't shove it down his throat like some of the conspiracy theorists but just to give a a bit of background he's the author of uh, rule by secrecy the rise of the rise of the fourth reich uh crossfire the plot that killed kennedy something we'll be talking about today i hope which is uh, the basis of the Oliver Stone film JFK, which yeah, not, yeah. not a lot of people will actually know, I don't think. No, but yeah, no, Jim no. was the author of the book that inspired that film. Yeah, exactly. And uh, he's, um, he's just released a novel, which I'm sure we'll talk about as well, called The Sisterhood of the Rose, uh, which is his first kind of novel. Although I think it's actually based on some kind of vision, but we'll, I'm sure we'll discuss that later on in the episode. But anyway, let's, uh, let's roll to that interview now. coming on the show um i was wondering could you give us a, a brief introduction to yourself and uh, what you do please well basically uh, i'm just uh, an old uh, texas newspaper reporter but i have a degree in journalism i got a classical education uh, where we actually read books and talked about concepts and, <laughs> instead of merely feeling good about ourselves and uh, uh i have followed a number of topics i cut my teeth on the uh, Kennedy assassination and uh, ended up writing a book called Crossfire, The Plot to Kill Kennedy, which was a basis for the Oliver Stone film 
uh, JFK. And then that led, led me on to other government conspiracies and cover-ups. Uh, my book, Alien Agenda, I've uh, been told, is the top-selling nonfiction book on UFOs in the world. Uh, it's been translated in about a dozen languages. And then that led to the question about, well, you know, who speaks for Earth? Uh, who's in control of this planet? And uh, that led to Rule by Secrecy, which traced the histories of the secret societies all the way back to the ancient Sumerian civilization. And then that led to uh, my uh, book on 9-11, The Terror Conspiracy, <laughs> which uh, basically lays out uh, in fully documented and footnoted sources uh, the fact that 9-11 was an inside job. Uh, then that led on to the rise of the Fourth Reich. Who are these people that are trying to run everything? And uh, then that just led right on up. Now, my latest book, The Sisterhood of the Rose, is my first foray uh, into fiction. It's a novel, mm. okay? But actually, Ken, I like to call it a work of faction. <laughs> it's fact-based fiction. Uh, for example... In there, uh, in in real life, uh, history students and and some of the older people will recall the strange and mysterious uh, flight of Hitler's deputy Rudolf Hess to England, where he parachuted out and was taken into custody and then held for the rest of his life. Um, that was all a British intelligence operation, and uh, in real life. They uh, obtained the services of an unnamed French astrologer who was put into touch with uh, Haushofer, uh, Rudolf Hess's astrologer, and was convinced that the stars were right and the time was propitious for Hess to fly to England and make peace between Germany and, and Great Britain. Uh, and of course, that didn't happen. But involved in this British intelligence operation, which was quite successful in getting rid of one of the top Nazis, was a British intelligence agent by the name of Ian Fleming, which we all might recognize as the uh, person who, after his government service, wrote the James Bond novels. Yeah. <laughs> so all that's very true. So all I've done, I, I recount uh, that whole thing. Uh, in the Sisterhood of the Rose, and the only fiction is, is I've thrown my main character, Giselle. She is the unknown, unnamed French astrologer. Ah. So it's it's a blending of fact and fiction. All right, so can you tell us a bit about the actual kind of uh, underpinning kind of storyline of the book? Oh, okay. Uh, well, Giselle Tchaikovsky uh, uh, was a uh, American-born. Uh, ballerina and quite a child prodigy and uh, in the early 1930s uh, as a very young girl uh, 12 13 14 uh, she toured Europe uh, dancing as this uh, ballerina and uh, as a result came into contact with many uh, well-to-do and well-established people and even some famous personages but she grew tired of as she grew older she grew tired of the of all the publicity and the constant uh, glare uh, of uh, the public and so she uh, quit dancing and and went to college and, and studied archaeology and so by 1939 uh, she ended up in uh, 
police, uh, which at that time was, I think, British Honduras, and uh, they made a discovery of a, an amazing crystal skull that was uh, reportedly, and according to legend, a, a totem of great power. Uh, the, she and her lover at that time, he was killed, she was left for dead, and a German man stole the skull, took it back to Europe, and presented it to Adolf Hitler, which, along with the spear of Longinus and, uh, and other occult objects, uh, reportedly gave Hitler all this great power, and that's why he was so successful uh, early in the war. And so the rest of the book is Giselle's journey back to Egypt, uh, Egypt, back to Europe, uh, and her efforts to regain the uh, crystal skull. But in the process, she finds out that the Nazis have located the greatest treasure trove in history, Solomon's treasure, and that it's located in the cave system in the Pyrenees between France and Spain. And so now she's not only after the skull, but she's trying to stop the Nazis from gaining Solomon's treasure. And again, that sounds like some kind of really far-out uh, book, but there is uh, documentation and evidence that the Nazis did go to southern France in early 1944 and did excavate in search of Solomon's treasure. Mm, interesting. Now, earlier on, you um, you referred to your book, The Fourth Reich, and you said there was a connection between this book and that book. Could you talk a little bit about that, please? Okay. Well, uh, The Sisterhood of the Rose, of course, is, like I said, faction, fact-based fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, the most, uh, Many of the people that are named in it, uh, Margaret Burke White, Eva Brown, uh, Clara Patachi, Ernest Hemingway, of course, these are all real people. And they were at the places where they're describing the book and doing the things that it's all about. All I did was weave in some uh, uh, characters like Giselle, who, by the way, uh, I'm saying it's a novel, but I got this story from a friend of mine, Celeste Levesque, who, beginning back in the early 90s, uh, told me this incredible story and said that she had had a near-death experience, and after that she had begun to have conscious recall of a past life as Giselle. So this is her recollections of her past life. Now, of course, I couldn't necessarily prove that, uh, especially since so much of the work she did was secret and based on a secret society. Hmm. Uh, so I finally just decided, well, you know, I, I can't prove it, I can't write it as a nonfiction book. So I'll just write it as a novel, and so that's what I did. But so much of what I deal with is also covered in my New York Times bestseller uh, nonfiction book, The Rise of the Fourth Reich. Yeah. And uh, as ominous as that sounds, there is plenty of documentation to show that while the Allies beat the Germans in World War II, no question about that, we did not beat the Nazis. Nazi, of course, is a acronym in the German language for National Socialist. Mm. And the National Socialists, the Nazis, they never surrendered. They never gave up. In fact, a lot of the top Nazis, not the very top, they were too public, so they all either got caught or committed suicide or disappeared, uh, like uh, uh, Martin Bormann. And, uh, but many thousands of them were actually brought to the United States 
by the High Commissioner of Germany after the war, John J. McCloy, and his protege, uh, Alan Dulles, who became head of the Central Intelligence Agency. And interestingly enough, it was these two men who were among the more prominent Americans before the war who funded and helped create Hitler and the Third Reich. John J. McCloy is head of National Citibank. That was the largest lender of money to the German government prior to the war. And Alan Dulles uh, was an attorney for Sullivan and Cromwell who represented the uh, Baron von Schroeder Bank, which was another giant supporter of Hitler and the Nazis. And they were also, a, Hitler was also aided by uh, an official at Union Banking Corporation uh, <laughs> whose name was Prescott Bush. Yes. Yeah, we've heard that before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and the grandfather of George W. Bush. So you can see that, uh, uh, as they say, at the, as the saying is at, the, at our National Archives, the past is prologue. Uh, if you understand who these people and, and personalities were prior to the war, you see they're still in place after the war, and they brought national socialism to the United States, but of course, as it began to take a firm choke on the U.S. government, they couldn't go under the name National Socialist. That, that's pretty obvious. So what they're known now is as uh, neoconservatives, <laughs> neocons, yeah, which yeah. is actually National Socialist. Yeah. Um, one thing I've always been fascinated with, the uh, post-World War II activities of the Nazis, um, there were some actual official groups uh, started, weren't there? By the, I think prior to the war, the war ending, one I think was called Odessa. I was wondering, have you ever heard of uh, the Odessa group? Or oh yes, Odessa. Yes, that was the uh, organization of ex-SS men, and there were several others. Despina. Uh, this, the, the, these collectively are known as the Rat Line, <laughs> the rats deserting the ship. And uh, interestingly enough. Uh, many of these Nazis that escaped Europe did so on uh, uh, papers uh, uh, that were given to them by the Vatican. Oh. Uh, so, so the Catholic Church is, is up to its neck in letting the Nazis uh, get out of Europe. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's like in, in my book, The Rise of the Fourth Reich, you have to understand that when you're talking about a Nazi, you're not necessarily talking about a goose-stepping German. <laughs> you're talking about someone who embraces the uh, philosophy of national socialism. And one of the key aspects of national socialism is the blending of state and corporate power, uh, which you certainly see in the United States. And that, of course, is the de that, that com combination of state and corporate power is the very dictionary definition of fascism. What kind of got you into the whole sort of uh, into what they call conspiracy writing, I suppose, or conspiracy theory? What was the? Right. Uh, what, there must have been a kind of uh, a moment in your life where you suddenly turned to this kind of writing. Um, well, I, I'm not sure I ever quite had a, an absolute epiphany, but <laughs> uh, I would have to say I guess it started with the uh, assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Uh, in November 22nd, 1963. At that time, I was a college student, and I was already on a degree plan for journalism, and I was already working as a reporter for uh, a Texas newspaper. And um, 
I just thought, you know, this is a heck of a story, and it happened right here in my backyard because uh, I was going to the University of North Texas, which is located in Denton, Texas, and that's only about 30 miles north of Dallas. In fact, Dallas is where we'd all go to party. Um, in fact, uh, less than a month before the assassination of President Kennedy, I was in Jack Ruby's Carousel Club. I have a photograph of me taken there and uh, dancing on the stage. Uh, I don't know what happened. I think I, I must have drank something I shouldn't. <laughs> but uh, And I actually met Jack Ruby. So I knew who the people were in Dallas. I knew what was happening in Dallas and who ran the city. And when the Kennedy assassination occurred, uh, I was as shocked and, and as anyone else. But then on Sunday, when I'm sitting watching television, I see Oswald killed by Jack Ruby in, while handcuffed to police officers in the basement of the Dallas police station. I just immediately thought, wait a minute, something's not right about this. So I began to pay closer attention. And the next thing that I can remember uh, really making an impression on me was that they all said that Kennedy had been killed by Lee Harvey Oswald using a bolt-action World War II Italian uh, war rifle. And uh, and yet all the witnesses and even some of the sound recordings made uh, showed that there was uh, a pow and then a pause and then a pow, pow, two shots just one on top of each other. And I knew at that point, having had bolt-action rifles of my own and had been deer hunting and other types of hunting, that you cannot get a pow-pow from a bolt-action rifle. Mm. You have to cock the bolt. And uh, in, even in the Warren report, the FBI acknowledged that it takes two seconds just to cock the bolt and pull the trigger of a bolt-action rifle. Mm. And yet these two sounds were closer than two seconds apart. So I knew something was funny going on then, but... I really didn't begin to understand the uh, level at which the assassination was carried out until about 1972, late 72, when uh, uh, McCord... uh, who was one of the Watergate burglars, finally opened up before in court and said, well, uh, actually, I, I'm working for the committee to reelect the president, which was President Richard Nixon. And uh, at that point, I realized that even the president of the United States could and would lie to us. And then uh, that began to explain the conspiratorial aspects of the Kennedy assassination. But the Kennedy assassination actually... Uh, it's pretty simple. Both the, uh, the, the Warren Commission, the House Select Committee on Assassinations, and even the American Medical Association's um, investigation and study of the assassination all proclaimed that Kennedy had been killed from bullets from a high-velocity rifle. Mm. Okay, And yet gun experts can tell you that the Mannlicher Carcano 6.5-millimeter uh, Italian war rifle that they said belonged to Lee Harvey Oswald is not a high-velocity rifle. Ergo, <laughs> Oswald could not have killed Kennedy. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. So um, tell us a little bit about the kind of social climate at the time in America. I mean, um, uh, JFK was a was quite a beloved president, I believe. And could you give us a bit of a kind of kind of social? Not, not in Texas. <laughs> yeah, could you give us? Yeah, a... you know, Ken, you hit a very very important point there. This is so astute of you. Um, you have to understand and put the assassination of Kennedy into the context of the times. Kennedy was not liked or respected much in Texas. 
Now, me personally, I was just a young guy. I didn't have any particular uh, hardened political beliefs, and I thought he was a nice-looking guy, and I thought it was kind of cool to have a such a pretty wife and have those cute little kids crawling around in the uh, Oval Office in the White House. But as far as his politics went, uh, you know, we were all told that he was too liberal. Uh, he was a Catholic. I can remember uh, growing up in the Baptist Church in Texas, and they said if Kennedy gets elected, this country's going to be run by the Vatican. You know that type of thing. And uh, and then of course it was a uh, it was the time of the Cold War. Uh, it was uh, time of the Cuban. And then when the Cuban Missile Crisis came along, uh, and it was uh, there was a lot of fear and hatred towards the. Uh, the old Soviet Union, and so the the watchword of the day was anti-communism. So anything anything anybody did that you didn't like, then they were probably a communist sympathizer. And uh, so down in the, especially in the South and Southwest, Kennedy was viewed as kind of a northeastern liberal and a probably a pro-communist type person. And there's uh, uh, I guarantee you uh, in Texas. Um, when the news came that he had been assassinated, there was more than a few that went good. You know, mm. that's a good thing. Uh, of course, today we're a lot more sophisticated, a lot more uh, our consciousness has been raised. And, and now I see Kennedy as as a president, one of the few presidents uh, in the history of the United States who actually tried to do and make decisions in the best interest of all the people of the United States, not just the special moneyed elite. And, of course, that's what got him killed. Do you think the proximity to where you were, where the assassination happened, or do you think it was generally because you were a Texan? Because, as you say, the Texans weren't particularly fond of Kennedy. What do you think has the biggest factor in your interest in the assassination? Because you said you didn't... You said at the time you were quite young and you didn't necessarily have the political um, mind to d- dislike Kennedy. Why do you think? What do you think has most shaped your your interest? Uh, I I would have to say it was just basic curiosity. Uh, I've always been a curious person and I've always been a, a seeker of truth and knowledge, and uh, I simply want to know what's going on. Uh, for example, in the Kennedy assassination, you know, if the mafia killed him, okay, all right. If Castro killed him, okay. If uh, if it was a lone nut, I can accept that too. In fact, uh, let me tell you, I spent a lot of time with Lee Harvey Oswald's mother, Marguerite Oswald, and she told me on more than one or two occasions, she said, you know, I could accept the idea that my son killed the president if they would simply prove it to me. And but they never proved it to her satisfaction, and frankly, they never proved it to my satisfaction. And in fact, according to the polls today, they haven't proved it to the satisfaction of about 85% of the Americans today. But officially, of course, that's still the story. So it's basically I've tracked conspiracies and mysteries because I just simply want to know the truth. <laughs> one one thing I've always thought was overlooked in the assassination of Kennedy is the viewpoint from. Marie- Marina Oswald. Now, you mentioned uh, Lee Harvey Oswald's mother. Marina mm-hmm. was uh, Lee Harvey Oswald's wife. Right. For 25 years, she, her evidence and what, whatever she said supported the idea that she believed her husband did do it, or at least could have done it. Mm-hmm. Then, in September 1998, she changed her story, I think, to say that she didn't believe, she no longer believed that he acted alone. 
what do you think that says about her? Because then it opens up the possibility that the FBI wanted her to incriminate Oswald very early on. What do you exactly. think happened? What do you think happened in September 1998? Sorry, 1988, for her to come out and say, "Well, actually, I don't think that he did act alone." What motive did she have? <laughs> to tell the truth, she knew the truth all along. Early on, early on, within you know, a day or two after the assassination, she's saying stuff like, Lee was a good man. He knows she killed anybody, okay? But then after being held by federal authorities for months on end, uh, and I'm sure pretty well browbeaten, plus, keep in mind, she couldn't speak English very well, plus she had two small children that she cared about and wanted to protect and was very, and was very much subject to deportation back to Russia, so, you know, they had every every kind of uh, hammer hanging over her. So she, uh, it was easy then to convince her, well, the evidence shows Lee did it. So she went, well, in uh, fact, uh, I believe that's what she said early on. She said, well, the evidence shows he was guilty. Okay? Yeah, that was, that was back in the day. But and, right. and of and, course, even back then, there was a lot of evidence to suggest from her and from many of his associates right. that, that he was right. psychotic you know, and violent. Yeah, uh, for why example, would she change, why would she change her story 25 years <laughs> later? Because it's safe. Because she, because she grew up, she <laughs> matured, and she learned. She learned English. Now she can speak perfectly good English. Plus, she's not a stupid person. I've met her several times. She's a very bright lady, and she studied and she looked at what was going on. And now she knows, you know, that he didn't do it. <laughs> if, if if that is the case, which it may well be, why wouldn't she? Do you think she fears for her own life that if she would say, I was forced to say this? Do you, do you think she's she's deliberately holding back from saying what really happened? Uh, I yes, mean, I, from the from the FBI's point of view. Yes, I think because, she's holding. I think she's holding back, uh, maybe in certain in several certain areas, uh, for that very reason. Yes, for the protection not, of her of her daughters and of her own life. Because I mean, in my book Crossfire, I detail about more than a hundred people who uh, uh, I turned convenient deaths uh, in that it was convenient for them to die before they could tell exactly what they knew about the assassination. And I'll be the first to admit that I'm, I'm not saying that all 100 died unnatural deaths, but many, many of them did. And uh, I think that, and I can tell you from my personal background and experience, as I said, I was in Dallas at that time, and there was a palpable aura of fear in that city because so many people knew that what the official story was saying was not what actually happened. And yet they, too, were whispering and talking about all the number of people uh, who had died in mysterious accidents and falls and auto wrecks and sudden heart attacks. Uh, and so there was a, there was, and this is one of the things, Ken, that actually got me onto the assassination story, other than mm. the ones I've already mentioned, which is, uh, within a few years of the assassination, I was working full time as a professional newsman for the Fort Worth Star Telegram, and I would go to Dallas quite frequently. And over in Dallas, when I get through with, you know, whatever story I was working on, I'd say, well, hey, by the way, what can you tell me about the Kennedy assassination? And right, and it, it was amazing. Here, here were very hardened politicians, city and county officials, and tough cigar-chewing police uh, brass, you know, and they would literally almost turn white and begin squirming in their seat. And it was obvious that they were very afraid of something. And, of course, right then I'm going, now, wait a minute. If Oswald, this lone schnook, 
did the job, what are they so afraid of? Mm. And, of course, now I understand, uh, just like uh, Robert Kennedy, right before he was assassinated, he was asked about uh, the, his brother's death, and he told uh, university students in California, he said, I cannot do anything about the death of my brother until I have the power of the presidency which tells me he understood what I understand and what I'm telling you, which is there will be no truth until you can wring the truth out of the FBI, the CIA, the Secret Service, the U.S. military, et cetera, et cetera, because it was a political assassination and uh, it was a coup d'etat. Yeah. So, I mean, one thing I find particularly interesting about the whole JFK uh, event is the uh, the kind of backstory of uh, Lee Harvey Oswald uh, prior to the uh, obviously prior to the shooting? Um, I was wondering, could you give us a bit of a kind of back history of Lee Harvey Oswald because there's some really interesting stuff in there that uh, the listeners might not know about. Right. Well, of course, according to the official pronouncements, uh, he was just a disgruntled ex-marine who defected to the Soviet Union and told them and anyone that he was going to give them military secrets, which makes him a traitor. Uh, he renounced his U.S. citizenship, but but he did it on a Saturday, and they said, well, you have to come back next week and fill out the paperwork, which he never did do. And so when he decided a year later he wanted to come back to the United States, not only did we did they allow him back in with no problem, but they, they even loaned him the money to come back on. Um he is a very mysterious character, and yet, uh, and he came back, and supposedly he was handing out pro-Castro literature on street corners, and uh, he supposedly was a pro-communist, pro-Castroite, and yet, when you look at the people he was actually in uh, con- connected to and in touch with, they were anti-communist and people with backgrounds in U.S. intelligence or U.S. military. Uh, His mother told me time and time again, my son works for the United States government. And now today, uh, of course, there was no way to prove that early on because he had very carefully followed orders and set himself up with a legend, as they say in intelligence, of being a pro-communist. But today, there is just overwhelming evidence to show that he was actually a low-level intelligence operative for the United States government. Uh, and he was uh, uh, only posing as a communist, which made him a perfect patsy for the assassination. And that's what he in, himself said in the Dallas police station. He said, no, sir, I didn't kill anybody. I'm just a patsy, which is really interesting because he didn't say I'm innocent. And he didn't say, you know, I didn't do it. He said, I'm a patsy. In other words, I've been set up to take the blame for this crime. And voice stress analysis shows that he was there was no tension in his voice. He was telling the truth, and there's a bunch of evidence to 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 back that up. Mm. So, I, I th- sorry, Ken. Um, you asked for a sort of a background for Oswald's history before the assassination, leading up to the assassination. Uh-huh. What, I was just wondering what Jim's views were or your opinions on on the claim that, and I think it's quite a lot of evidence points towards the claim that. Oswald was it was Oswald that attempted to kill Major General Edwin Walker. I think that was in April of, of the same right. year. Right. What what do you think uh, about that? Uh I don't think I think he was set up for that too. And I'll tell you why. 
in the fall of 1964, just a month or two after the Warren Commission had issued their report, I went to Dallas, went to his Turtle Creek home, and sat down with General Edwin Walker and had an in-depth interview with him. And at that time, there were people whispering in Dallas saying, you know, Lyndon Johnson was probably behind this and therefore is probably a right-wing uh, assassination, okay, uh, because everybody knew that Kennedy was considered so liberal. So I went, and there was <laughs> with this little question in the back of my mind, maybe General Walker, who was pretty much, in, uh, you know, headed up a lot of the hardcore right-wingers there in Dallas, I said, you know, he maybe he had a role to play in this. And, but I was soon uh, uh, lost that thought because Edwin Walker told me, we were talking about the Warren Commission report, and he said, well, Rubenstein, he called Jack Ruby Rubenstein, which was his real name. He said Rubenstein and Oswald knew each other, and they're connected. And he said, so the Warren Commission's wrong, and they're going to have to start over just on that one fact alone. Well, you know, that told me that General Walker and the Dallas right wing did not have anything to do with the assassination. Otherwise, you know, he would not have been uh, going against the Warren report. He would have been supporting it. Uh, so we also talked about the shooting uh, that somebody had taken a shot at him back in, I think you're right, I think about April of 63. And uh, I asked him, did he think? that it was Oswald who had took, a, took a shot at him, and he said, no, I don't think so, because he said, at the time, the police told me that the slug they dug out of my wall was a .30-06, and Oswald was never known to own or possess a .30-06 rifle. So does that answer your question? If, well, if, if Oswald was set up for it, why was he set up for it? Because nothing ever came of it, really, in, in relation to the Kennedy assassination. If he was set up for that, somebody yeah. would, anybody with, with a brain would say, well, hang on, if he's being set up for that, it's surely being set up to be used later. Are you talking about along being the set up? Of, yeah, are you talking about being set up for the General Walker shooting? Sorry, yes, the General Walker shooting. Yeah, if, okay, all right. Well, if, here's the thing. Nobody nobody heard of Oswald. Nobody said he was a suspect until after the assassination. So, well, it was easy enough to say, well, we think Oswald did that, and then that just you know impresses on the public mind how violence-prone he was. Mm. It's like this. Every, you know, every police department would love to close the book on a crime. And at the time of the Kennedy assassination, uh, that was still an open case because they had not caught anybody who took a sh shot at Walker. So it was, if nothing else, it was convenient for the police to say, well, that was probably Oswald, and they closed the book on the case. The one bit, the one kind of claim within the whole JFK uh, event or theory or whatever, I've always just found it unbelievable. <laughs> it's the most, the most crazy of all the... Uh, uh, bits of quote-unquote evidence thrown out is the magic bullet theory. Um, <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, could you uh, uh, sort of, because not every listener we've got here will know what the magic bullet theory is. Could you uh, give us a bit of background on that and your own theories on it? Okay, well, <laughs> the, the, uh, here was the problem. Early on, the uh, official government story was that uh, there had been three shots fired at Kennedy by Lee Harvey Oswald from the sixth floor of the scuba depository. The first shot hit Kennedy in the back, and the second shot hit Connolly and wounded him, and the third shot hit Kennedy in the head and killed him. Okay? That is a plausible theory. 
The problem was is that as the Warren Commission went along and it got into the spring of 1964, they had to deal with a fourth shot because uh, James Tague was a bullet struck the curb near his feet down on Commerce Street, and it actually bloodied his, sent a chip up and bloodied his uh, cheek, and he was actually, and no, though not by name, he, th- that event was detailed in at least two uh a police report and a deputy sheriff's report. So, and James Tague tried to go and talk to the Warren Commission, and they were ignoring him. They didn't want to hear about that. But then an assistant U.S. attorney in Dallas sent the Warren Commission a letter along with the Dallas news clipping stating there was a bullet mark on the street. So all of a sudden, they can't ignore a U.S. attorney. So all of a sudden, they're confronted with a fourth bullet, which, of course, three bullets in six seconds just stretched the uh, positive, the probability that uh, that one person could do all that in a fourth shot would make it impossible. Mm-hmm. So they had to explain. Uh, so rather than explain the fourth shot, what they did was Arlen Specter, who is now uh, under a cloud of uh, of, of uh, problem with uh, his voters. Um, he was a young lawyer for the Warren Commission, and he comes up with the single bullet theory, which says the first shot pierced Kennedy's uh, neck and then went right on and struck Governor Connolly, caused all his wounds. The second shot missed and, and hit the curb. Nick James Tagg explains that. And then the third shot hit Kennedy in the head. Well, this is a, it's a ridiculous theory because, for one thing, according to the autopsy, Kennedy was struck in the back at the third thoracic vertebra, which is below your shoulder blades. And yet, they, we now know there was a bullet hole in his throat at the level of the Adam's apple. Well, if you connect a hole in the back at the third thoracic vertebra and connect it to the Adam's apple, you got an upward trajectory, which is impossible for a bullet coming in a downward trajectory. So it, it's just a cockamamie lie that they told to the public, and because it, it was an official pronouncement and there was no one calling their bluff on this for many years, it just got stuck in the public consciousness. And so that's why today, though, the single bullet theory has become known as the magic bullet theory, because for that to have worked, the bullet would have had to come down at a steep downward angle, hit Kennedy in the back, then somehow course upwards, come out his throat in an upward trajectory, somehow twist in midair, go back down, strike Connolly at the right armpit in the back, shatter his fifth rib, come out of uh, his chest near his, the right nipple, somehow go into the top side, front side of his wrist, shattered wrist bone, one of the most dense bones in the human body, come out and then end up over and then penetrate his left thigh. None of that makes any sense. Jim, it's very, it's very interesting, that magic bullet theory, but what I think the magic bullet theory relies upon is that Governor Connolly and President Kennedy were firstly sitting at the same height and were also sitting uh, in, a, in, in a line with each other, but the car that they were in was not designed that way. Kennedy was a lot no. higher than Connolly. And exactly. Connolly, in, in Connolly was on a jump seat. He wasn't even sitting on a normal seat. He was in a little fold-down jump seat. And although uh, uh, Kennedy and, and Connolly, I think, were pretty close to the same in height, Connolly, all you have to do is look at photographs. He's sitting much lower than President Kennedy. Mm. Yeah. A lot of the, th- the people who like to debunk the conspiracy theories will use that to say, uh, that they'll sh- they'll shrug off the magic bullet theory by saying 
well, look, for the magic bullet theory to work, they have to be sitting in a line uh, directly in front of one another. And the fact that they weren't instantly debunks the theory. But actually, what it does, it could do is it could increase the chances of uh, increase the possibility that it is just a wild theory because the distance between them was even greater than than was originally okay. thought. All right, how do you explain this? Uh, according to Conley's own doctor, uh, he had to uh, the treat the uh, exit wound in Kennedy's chest for infection because the bullet, both men were wearing mohair jackets, and the bullet would push fibers of the mohair into the wound, which would cause uh, an infection. Uh, Conley was treated for an infection on his exit wound, but he had no infection on his entrance wound, which means that bullet had not gone through Kennedy's jacket. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's it's always a theory that's that's I think is is again it's overlooked um, and it I think it needs a bit more sort of investigation. I did actually well, watch one document. I think what actually happened was Kennedy was hit once in the back. He was hit from the front in the throat, and he was hit possibly simultaneously or almost simultaneously by two shots: one from the rear, one from the front, on the right side of his head. Uh, Connolly was hit twice. One bullet entered his chest. The other came and entered his wrist and went over in his left thigh. But, of course, if they admitted to that, then they're admitting to two shooters, and they would not, could not, would not admit to that. Have you seen the documentary, The Kennedy Assassination, Beyond Conspiracy? Uh, yes. Do you know that? Uh, yes, oh, that yes, I do. That was a documentary that was a factual documentary. Yeah, it, it was it made on as the... a supplement to the JFK movie, and it's really extraordinary. I would encourage everyone to try to get a copy and view I, that, because I, that'll tell you what really went on. Well, I, I do like that documentary. Um, and in that, they did have, well, actually, I think you might be thinking of a different documentary to me. Uh, it might have had a different title in America. But in this documentary, I can't remember the name of the man, but I believe he was about 80 years old. And he stood in the sixth floor of the, the Texas School Book Depository in the same window ledge. And he showed that even as an 80-year-old man, that that gun, the same model gun, the Manlika Kakano rifle, could be fired six times within the allotted four-second time frame. He was an 80-year-old well, man. Yes. Uh, okay, uh, I, I, I have some German Mauser rifles, and yes, I can squeeze off three shots in six seconds, all right? But am I going to hit uh, a moving target going downhill laterally away from me <laughs> with a tree obscuring the line of sight? I don't think so, and nobody's been able to duplicate that. In fact, I was in England one time or shortly after the movie came out, and we, we anyway, I was in Liverpool, and we went down to the docks, and they had a police sharpshooter, and uh, he tried to duplicate that shot, and he couldn't do it. He said, you can't do this. <laughs> I think for every person that says it can't be done, um, or every there's, documentary there's that says it can't be done. say it can, yeah. 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 <laughs> and, of course, and, of course, the power, the forces uh, that were behind the assassination are still in power in the United States and in Great Britain. Mm. And so, officially, you're not going to have anyone, uh, you know, officials come out and say, no, it couldn't work. But unofficially, they all say it can't work. And uh, one of the top snipers in the world is a friend of mine, Craig Roberts, who got medals for his sniper work in Vietnam. He he tried to do it, and he says it can't be done. Yeah. Uh, Interestingly, you talked about the official side of things. It brings me nicely onto an element uh, that I'd like to. I'd, I'd love to, to hear your your viewpoint on it. Um, the three tramps. Right. 
Well, the, one of those tall tramps has been definitely identified as Charles Harrelson, who was a convicted assassin. He, he was convicted of murdering a federal judge. Uh, and he more or less confessed to participation in the Kennedy assassination because he told a Dallas Morning News reporter while he was in jail in Dallas, he said, I can't talk while I'm here in jail, but when I get out, I'll give you the biggest story you ever had. And it has to do with November the 22nd, 1963. And there's a photograph of him as the tall tramp. The, these uh, three so-called tramps, although they were wearing uh, you know, unused clothing, and they had shiny shoes, and they didn't much look like tramps. And they were escorted back through DB Plaza on the way to the Dallas County Sheriff's Office, and they were photographed. Uh, the young, the uh, old man tramp has been identified as Chauncey Holt, uh, an, again another man who was connected to the CIA. And E. Howard Hunt was uh, allegedly one of them as well, wasn't they? Yes, there's a yeah. photograph of him in Dealey Plaza. What I think is most amazing is that they were held for four days until they were released after the assassination. Right, it's quite a long time, isn't it? And then, well, actually, I think they were released a lot quicker than that. I don't think think, they were held for. No, I believe they were released on the twenty sixth of November. Well, that's that's just the Monday after the Friday assassination. It's a long time, isn't it? That weekend, yeah, that's a long time, and that's because I think that there were people who were not in the know who truly believed that they were uh, part of the assassination. But then, you know, when the federal officials all said, no, 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 Oswald did it all by himself, they let him go. And there was, for the longest time, for years, there was no record uh, of these three guys. And then all of a sudden, three arrest reports show up in the Dallas police files, all written in the same handwriting, obviously, and hurriedly written by the same person. And they named three other people. They said, oh, this is who the tramps were. Okay, so, I mean, there's a lot of confusion and controversy in all of the evidence. One of the strongest pieces of evidence that they used to convict Oswald in the minds of the public was that on uh, Monday night following the assassination, Henry Wade just offhandedly said, oh, as I mentioned, uh, we've got his fingerprints on the rifle. Okay, well, that sounds like pretty damning evidence, and it certainly sold the public on the idea that Oswald did it. But if you look at the facts, it's not what it's cracked up to be. The rifle was shipped to the FBI crime lab that Friday night, and on Saturday, in a document signed by J. Edgar Hoover himself, they said they could find no usable prints on the rifle or even the inner parts of the rifle. On Sunday, the rifle was sent back to Dallas, and on Monday morning was carried over to Miller Funeral Home by two FBI agents, uh, and the funeral home director, Paul Grudy, who is still alive and who would tell you this himself, and he said, in fact, he said it on national radio uh, just about a year ago, that he was there when they put Oswald's dead hand on the rifle, and he had a tough time getting the fingerprint ink off of Oswald's dead hand in time for the burial. Uh, so, in other words, that's where the fingerprints came from. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Well, another theory, I've never really actually sort of seen anything really uh, mentioned about this before, but I heard Robert Anton Wilson talking about it once, that there was some kind of strangeness surrounding uh, JFK's body when it was moved from uh, Dallas to Washington, I believe. Absolutely. The the wounds to President Kennedy's body, as observed by a whole bevy of medical experts, doctors and medical technicians at uh, Parkland Hospital, uh, differed widely with what was viewed at the autopsy of President Kennedy. And what that suggests is is that there were alterations made to the body prior to the autopsy. 
to make it appear as if he had been shot from just from the rear. How would they have gone about doing that? I'm sorry. How how would they have actually gone about doing that? Do you think? Well, uh, according to uh, uh, Doug Horn, who was the uh, analyst uh, of military records for the Assassination Records Review Board, he is now on the record as saying that the uh, autopsy photographs are phonies. Okay, uh, Floyd Reby, the man who took the original autopsy photographs photographs is on the public record saying that the photographs that the government is now showing uh, reportedly of Kennedy's body and autopsy uh, are not the photographs he took. So, see, there's been a lot of official uh, misconduct hmm. in, this, in the evidence. That's why this case is still considered controversial, although it's really not a true controversy. Uh, it, it only seems controversial because there's such a wide disparity between the official pronouncements and then those who've actually studied the case. Uh, Jim, at the top of the show, Ken mentioned that uh, it was your book that inspired the JFK, the hugely successful JFK film. And I'm sure you'll be aware that many people who absolutely love the film love the film for the reason that it was a reenactment of of an event that they can look back on uh, with sadness, and that was the day of their youth. Um, and even though the film does have a message, a lot of the people will be completely oblivious or ignorant to the message uh, contained within the film, the, the, the plot, as it were. So, uh, obviously, it was based upon your book. I was wondering, could you explain briefly, for those who have seen the film, who enjoy the film, or those who have never seen it, what is the conspiracy theory that is um, put out by the film JFK and indeed your book? Well, uh, I think the evidence shows that Kennedy was killed in an ambush, a military-style ambush, a triangulation of fire, three shooters possibly, maybe more, and uh, because they could not allow him to leave that plaza alive or he'd come after everybody involved. Um, and that's what the evidence points to. Um, again, though, you have the official pronouncements. Now, uh, I was very gratified with the movie because, number one, Oliver Stone, although he based the uh, assassination uh, segment of the movie on my book, Crossfire, he did not just take the book and use it. He had a whole research staff headed by a very sharp lady named Jane Rasconi, and they uh, backtracked on my work. They interviewed some of the same witnesses I'd talked to. They looked at the same documentation that I'd looked at. And interestingly enough, they came to the same conclusion. Kennedy was killed by a crossfire by multiple assassins, and it was a coup d'etat. The subject of JFK is still, I mean, it was kind of really one of the first, what I call super conspiracy theories, wasn't it? It was the real first, it kind of uh, brought a lot of people together, you could say, in terms of... Uh, you know, it's a, it was a, a shared conspiracy, almost. <laughs> and and right. it's never-ending, right. is it? It's still going you know, on throughout all of the yeah. investigations. Mm. Exactly, and that's because uh, even beginning at the time, there were people who disbelieved the official uh, pronouncements because it was not supported by the best evidence. And so uh, once you study it and once you come to the clear understanding of what really happened, and if you're an honest and honorable person, then you're going to continue to stand up for the truth. And that, again, has led to the continued interest and the continuing controversy.
Ken mentioned, you talk about uh, evidence, and Ken mentioned about the body of uh, Kennedy. One of the huge uh, pieces of evidence that people sort of talk about is the loss from the National Archives of Kennedy's brain. Why is the loss of his brain so important? And is it not just pounced upon by conspiracy theorists? Um, I was wondering, why do you think it's a dem demonstrably uh, fundamental issue of contention with regard to conspiracy theories? Why is it so important, the loss of his brain? What could it prove that it couldn't back in the day? Well, it could have back in the day, but it wasn't studied, at least not independently. And then when independent researchers might have had an opportunity to try to examine it, then it turned up missing. Oh, we, we don't know what happened to it, you know, which is pretty incredible in itself. Uh, but the importance of the brain cannot be understated. Uh, if they had the brain, since he was shot in the head, uh, forensic experts could have examined it and could have told with quite certainty uh, exactly how many bullets had come in and from which direction. Hmm, interesting. You, 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 and it is your genuine belief that if it did turn up, even if it turned up today, it could still harbour um, some sort of evidence. Yes. You still believe that after all these years? Yes, yes that's why it's not available. Yeah. Right. <laughs> would, uh, and, and I mean, think about it, fellas. Think about it. If it was Lee Harvey Oswald all by himself, and the assassination therefore was just kind of an accident of history, then why should there be all this missing evidence? Why should hmm. his brain be missing? Why should the autopsy, original autopsy notes have been burned and then rewritten? Uh, why, why all of this? I mean, there are bums in, in Great Britain and in the United States who, who overdose on wine on the street and who get a better autopsy than the President of the United States. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. O over the years, evidence has been released by whoever, you know, the, the archives. Um, I think the next batch is due to be released in 2017. What, mm -hmm. do you think, what do you think is most likely to be uncovered by that in 2017? Not much. <laughs> Do you think it's going to answer any questions? Not really, uh, because I'm sure that that evidence has been gone through with a fine-tooth comb. And, uh, you know, anyone who's expecting that they're going to release a thank you note from Lyndon Johnson to Lee Harvey Oswald. <laughs> or, you know, it just didn't going to happen. Uh, in fact, I, I, you know, people ask me all the time, will we ever know the truth about the Kennedy assassination? And I try to tell them, look, we know the truth now, but you have to study all the evidence. You have to look at the whole thing, put it in context, and then use your own God-given brain and figure out what happened because it's all there. Uh, that's, so you're not really asking the proper question. What you're really asking is, will the government ever hold a press conference and come public and say, okay, folks, here's what really happened? No, that ain't going to happen. Mm. Yeah. I've, I've got a couple of questions for you, Jim. They're not, uh, they're not very good questions, but they're questions that have bugged me for years. In the photo of leading up to his assassination of, of the Lincoln Continental, were you aware, I spotted it in, in one of the photos, the door of Kennedy's car is his, the door which he would have got into the limousine. The door is open at the time he was assassinated. Did you know that? No, that's a new one on me. Yeah, it, I, I don't know if anybody else has spotted it. I've searched on the internet, uh, all over the internet, uh, using Google, uh, using specific search terms, and I don't think anybody else has noticed that the door which Kennedy would have used to get into the car 
was not actually properly shut. It doesn't mean anything, I'm sure, but I've never yet found anybody on the internet that has realised that. And <laughs> well, if... now, I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to argue with you because uh, I, I'm unfamiliar uh, with the door, but I would say that you may perhaps have the door of the presidential limousine mixed up with uh, the car that Johnson was riding. No, no, in. no, it's, so it's definitely the link. That it's car did have a door open. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely SS100X, the, the okay. Lincoln. Con it's definitely All Kennedy's. Right. There's a photo, and in fact, Kennedy is in the photo, and it's only one single photo. Um, I know this is going to go up on Ken's, obviously on sitting now on the website. And yes, Ken, I'd alongside, like to see that. Alongside yeah. the article, I'd like to link to the photo, which clearly shows Kennedy sitting in his car with the door open. Uh, Ken, if you if you could do that, yeah, that'd yeah, be great. Sure, but, yeah, that'd be good. But yeah, it's, it's, it's I, I can't remember which photo it is, but I I have got it, and uh, I'll certainly dig it out. Another f question I've got is this this it's the final question. It's it's not an important one, but uh, Jim, do you own any artifacts on the JFK assassination? Do you own any anything that was there on the day? Any items of clothing? Because they do come up for auction now and again. I was wondering, did you own any mm. artifacts? Um. I'm not sure how to answer that because it, do I have any uh, artifacts that say belong to Kennedy, belong to the car, or something <laughs> like that? No, I don't. But I do have uh, a note written to me from uh, Marguerite Oswald, Lee's mother, uh, that says the charges against my son are are unfounded, uh, and I do have a, uh, a, a uh, invitation to the trademark uh, where he was uh, scheduled to speak. Uh, at that day, and, and then, of course, I begin to collect the newspapers from that very day, uh, so I have a pretty good collection of the uh, published material about it, and there's lots of interesting things in there. Uh, for instance, the first AP story that went out said that there was a burst of automatic gunfire from the railroad bridge. Well, that would have been in front of him, and a burst of automatic fire is not three shots. Uh, and, and of course, that's supported by uh, uh, John Connolly, who uh, in interviews immediately after the assassination said he heard a shot, he knew it was a shot. He began to turn and was trying to get a look and see if it had hit Kennedy when he himself was hit. He did not hear that shot, which is absolutely correct because, uh, you know, a rifle bullet is supersonic. It, uh, it hits you before the sound reaches you. And uh, then he, as he was wounded and laying over in his wife's lap, he said he heard more shots and thought to himself, somebody's using an automatic rifle. Well, according to the official version, after he had been hit, there was only one more shot. So why would he think there was an automatic rifle in use? And I submit because there were multiple shots. <laughs> Yeah, no, definitely. Well, Jim, um, just before you go, uh, I'd like to just really quickly talk to you about another uh, great book of yours called uh, Above Top Secret, which mm -hmm. is, um, I, I believe this is came out not that's, so long ago, didn't it? But it's a... It's a yeah. It's, it's been out about a year, but hmm. that's everything that they don't want you to know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it covers covers a wide range of topics from the Kennedy assassination to 9-11 to... Did we actually go to the moon? Is there a Nazi base in Antarctica? Uh, you know, uh, is God an alien? I mean, <laughs> just some, some really interesting stuff. And uh, I don't profess to have 
100% ground truth answers to all of these uh, mysteries and conspiracies, but what I've done there is in each chapter touched on a different conspiracy and then given the pros and cons of it and, and then try to say, now here's what seems to be the case. Yeah, I mean, as uh, to our listeners, I mean, this is a, it's kind of a great kind of coffee table book, isn't it? In some ways, in the way that you well, know, it's a, it's a good quick reference yeah, guide as well. I find exactly, exactly. I call it a primer. Okay, mm. this is a primer. This is conspiracy one hundred and one mm. that would kind of introduce you to all these various conspiracies. And my hope was in writing above top secret that it would. Uh, encourage the readers to go and research further on these topics mm. so um obviously you've just like we said earlier you've just released your first novel uh, how's how's it been received uh, by the people that usually read your nonfiction? um well i'd, I'd have to say that it's, it's it's so far it's getting uh about mixed reviews about half and half half the people who are kind of aware of some of the issues involved in the sisterhood such as the uh, the Knights Templars, uh, the mystery at Rennes-le-Chateau mm. in southern France, and uh, the Nazis' hunt for uh, occult objects and artifacts. Uh, they love it, <laughs> and they think it's great because there it all is in a rollicking good story. Uh, other people, <laughs> like one critic says, well, he thought it was pretty good until he got to the point where Ava Brown was involved, and he thought it just went over the top. And it's, so, of course, if you're locked into a very conventional worldview then you might think it seems kind of silly but uh, uh there you know as shakespeare said there are more things under heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our <laughs> philosophies. so the so the right people like it then you mean <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, uh, i don't know it's it's just up this is a uh, I, this sounds strange, but I guess I'd have to say it's kind of like a, a good work of art, okay? It, 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 the validity of it entirely rests with the reader. <laughs> you either enjoy it and, and tend to buy into it, or you don't enjoy it and you don't buy into it. It's a beautifully presented book as well. I've got the hardback here uh, had sent to me from Disinfo. It's a really nice... Uh... It's just a great package as well. <laughs> yes, they did a very, very good design on it. It, it. For one thing, it's got rounded corners, which is kind of cool because, mm. you know, that kind of sets it apart from most books. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, Jim, I'm going to have to get you back on at some point because we only really got into JFK today, So, uh, and I want to talk to you about a few other things. So we'll have to get you back on soon if you're up for it. That's fine. Just uh, give me a shout and we'll uh, we'll go around again. Okay, and th- thanks a lot again for uh, coming on the show. And uh, yeah, we'll Thank you for answering our questions. Yeah. Yeah, we'll speak to you soon. Thank you, Jacob. Thank you, Ken. Yeah.
MySpace Heroes number 16, definitely number 16. Uh, this week, Uber Tweet, I'm Not Dreaming of You. U-Barn with Camphor and UFO with Bloody Murder. Last night I had the strangest dream Can't begin to tell you what I seen In this silly, silly, silly crazy dream Last night I had the strangest dream Last night my teeth fell in my hands The frozen piece had shipped them clean Oh my man Last night I had the strangest dream Last night, werewolves, werewolf Mormon Bible studies underground, and it's jelly heavy dreams I found, I found, 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 found. But, but I guess it's better than dreaming of you. Funny little thing that my Less you dreaming of me so Less you dreaming of me so Why don't you tell me are you dreaming of me Cause then I'll dream of you So well I gotta admit I have Been dreaming of you in so many crazy ways Why the other day you were in my dream In a yellow jumpsuit And we were spa fighting we were fighting like ninjas. Yes, I can't explain it. You had pretty long red hair and uh, a yellow jumpsuit. I already mentioned that. But we were sparring and fighting a, ma- a married couple. It was uh, quite romantic. I had you in my kung fu grip, and we kissed. In my kung fu grip, we kissed. Oh, I, oh, I. I hope for that day, yes, when I can take you close, call you mine, and never let you go from my kung fu
Okay, thanks to Daddy Tank for another great MySpace Heroes. Always a pleasure. Anyway, Jim Mars, what a great interview. I really enjoyed that. What did you think? Yeah, but I'd like to... Well, we didn't have too long with him, but I mean, I could have talked... This is an area which interests me so much, the Kennedy assassination, and, and I'm glad we sort of mainly focused on that. But um, there's so many questions that that you could have asked him. And also, not only that, but he knows so many of the people involved. He's met Jack Ruby, he's... He's met. He's put. He's he's been involved. I'm not say involved. Sorry. He's met Marina Oswald. You know. He knows the people. Um. He's met some of the big the figures from from the history of the assassination. So, if you can doubt his um his theories, you can't doubt the fact that he's he's sort of been there and done that. He's yeah, yeah. um quite a prominent figure in in Texas. And uh, yeah, I don't think there's probably many other people in the in the world that can speak on the authority. That he has and I keep stressing the point you know you haven't got to agree with him but the fact that he's met these people and he knows he knows them and knows what he's talking about you, you can't argue with it really no no he's definitely uh, well informed I mean Jeff I mean when it comes to my opinion of conspiracy theories and where I sort of sit with them the JFK theory is actually the one I find the most compelling as an actual you know theory <laughs> that makes no, sense I, so. I disagree I, I, I'm I don't believe in any conspiracy with the, the JFK um I do believe that Lee Harvey Oswald was the gunman, lone gunman. As far as conspiracy goes, I could entertain the idea perhaps that somebody hired Lee Harvey Oswald, but I still believe that he was the lone gunman. Mm. Um, a conspiracy, as far as I'm concerned, if there was one, could be along the lines of somebody hired Harvey Oswald, but I don't think they did, but I certainly don't think that there was more than one gun. I just think that um, it's far too difficult for more than one gunman to, to hide and get away so quickly without being found. Um, there's, like I said, there's lots of evidence we could have discussed there with, with Jim. So many questions. Um, he mentioned James Taig. Um, I believe James Taig is still alive. He was injured standing on um, under the railway bridge on um, in Dealey Plaza. He got he was standing on the pavement and a bullet struck the pavement and injured him. Um, I believe he's still alive, um, but yeah, it'll be great to. I didn't actually ask Jim whether he's met James Tag, but it would be interesting to to hear what he has to say because he's one of those characters that doesn't really speak in the media very much. Um, perhaps that's one of the problems with the Kennedy assassin assassination. People are afraid to talk. You know, they want to resign it to the history books. They just want to move on. And yeah, like Jim said, I don't think we'll ever get to the bottom of it, but. Uh, and because of that, the conspiracy theories will always continue. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's still a fascinating topic, whichever oh, side yeah. of the fence you stand on. I mean, yeah. Literally. I, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, no pun intended. And um, yeah, so I mean, uh, like I said, I really enjoyed having Jim on the show. Um, I'm definitely going to have to have him back on. I always find yeah. uh, we don't really do, uh, we've been a bit occult heavy recently with our shows, and it's quite nice to kind of, you know, chat about. Yeah, all and it's something that I'm interested in, and. Um, I think it, it widens the appeal of sitting now. Like I said, I think this this episode is going to be really high up on the ratings pretty soon because it covers. Because <laughs> you're on it. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, yeah, because of that, but but because the Kennedy assassination appeals to so many people, regardless of whether you think it's a conspiracy or not, people like to hear about the theories and hmm. and Jim Mars. You know, he is a media figure. He's an authority, hmm. and people like to hear what he has to say. So it yeah. could be a 
you know, it'd be interesting to see the comments and feedback. And also, for the future, like you say, we, we might speak to Jim again, hopefully if he's willing to do it. If we get good feedback, bad feedback, whatever, please leave all your comments on the website. Mm -hmm. And maybe next time we could put your questions directly to him. Yeah. Um, well, and I also, I've done um, live interviews before. Um, yeah, yeah. Perhaps we could get people people to join in. We That'll be a great we prospect, We stopped doing really. that because, uh, just temporarily, we did two shows live. We did uh, Isaac Bonwitz and Mitch Horowitz live. But uh, I think we're going to go back to doing that next year because I want to actually set up a kind of regular time because it's really difficult. Yeah. You, you have to kind you've of... You know, to arrange it, yeah. You've got to arrange it and then you've also got to let everyone know in time. Often we don't find out that we're doing the interview sometimes until the day before, like today. So it's, it's kind of difficult to, to do that. So what we're going to do is start setting up a more regular time to do the show. And we're, yeah, so we're always trying to get them out more out than we actually do. <laughs> but we'll see. Yeah. Anyway, um, if you want to uh, help us out, like I said earlier in the show, um, we'd really appreciate it if you haven't done it. Give us either just a rating or an, uh, a review on iTunes. I think we might be on the Zoom store now as well in the States. Um, so if they have a review system, do the same there for us, please. Actually, let us know as well, especially if you're not in the US or the UK, because occasionally I do a trawl of the iTunes interview, uh, reviews in other stores, uh, and I found some in, I think it was Norway, some really great uh, reviews, rather. And yeah, so uh, let me know that you've done them, and I'll... Uh, We've still got the forum as well on the on yeah, Sitting Now website. I think it's broken at the moment, actually. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, if you want to follow us uh, on Twitter, it's at Sitting Now, or forward slash Sitting Now, whichever. Uh, obviously... Uh, website sittingnow.co.uk you can follow our stories we've just had some really great uh, stuff from joe mcfall from the out there radio cast um and of course you can email me ken at sittingnow.co.uk and we'll see you on the next episode